0: It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighbourhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he's considered as the rightful property of some one or other of their daughters.
1: The opening lines of the first book that George Shields ever read. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen and George Shields took to reading only because he was lying in a hospital bed in Canada, his legs paralysed after an accident on the railway. This was the turn of the century and young George Shields had come from the town of Ballymoney in County Antrim to make his way in the New World. He could never have guessed it at the time, but in a few years, he too was to become a writer. Not a novelist, but one of Ireland's best-loved playwrights, and one of the Abbey Theatre's most successful. In George Shields' town of Ballymoney, Alex Blair has made a special study of the playwright,
2: beginning with the problem of finding out exactly when he was born quite a considerable problem because most of the books, anybody who had ever written a biography of him or even a short biographical note in any of these dictionaries of biography uh, had decided that he was born in 1885 or 1886 or even 1889 I have seen in one. And uh, when I went to see the parish priest in Ballymoney he showed me the baptismal register And uh, he showed me there that George Shields was baptised on the 24th of June, 1881. So, of course, one can never trust absolutely these things because priests have a habit of making mistakes and of not entering things maybe just as correctly as they should be. So I thought that one was best to be very certain before one made a statement on something as important as this. So after quite a lot of research, uh, his birth certificate was found and the birth certificate states quite clearly that he was born on the 24th of June, 1881.
1: George Shields was the son of Robert Shields, a railway worker, and his wife, Eliza Sweeney. He was actually born in Milltown, near Ballymoney, and that information has also come from the enthusiastic Alex Blair, who's been able to provide documentary evidence of the date and place of Shields' birth. In a small Antrim town in the 1890s, a continuing education for the young George Shields just wasn't possible.
2: Uh, He could read and write, but uh, he had very little interest in those things as a young man. I think he was a pretty big, tough character uh, who really wanted to get out in the world and do all sorts of manly things and go and work as a labourer, which is basically what he did in America and Canada. And he had no these things where, to use the phrase that might be used in Ballymoney, kind of sissy things that weren't associated with the kind of person that he felt he was. And it was really only as a result of his accident that he turned to books.
1: Do you think his parents had anything to do with his decision to go to Canada?
2: Well, I don't know. Uh, I think that the main problem was the problem that he didn't have any job in Ballymoney. And there were a tremendous number of people in the town and district at that time going to America and Canada. Uh, It was quite fashionable indeed to do that. And uh, great numbers indeed, many in New York and many in Boston and great numbers in Philadelphia. There are more Ballymoney people in Philadelphia than in Ballymoney.
1: Nobody is quite certain how old George Shields was when he emigrated to America. Alex Blair puts him at between 18 and 20. In America, Shields worked in bars, in lumber camps and in the mines. As he was to say himself afterwards, few jobs would have frightened me at the time. He was working on the building of the Canadian Pacific Railroad as a charge hand to a gang of navvies when he met with the accident that was to change his entire life. Today, there's no true record of what actually happened.
2: Well, uh, I have heard two stories of his accident. Uh, He was working as a charge hand uh, with a crowd of Italian navvies uh, building the Canadian Pacific Railway. And one story is that this train came along the line without whistling, giving any warning, and uh, he was in a buggy on the line and the uh, train collided with the buggy. The other version uh, is that he was on the line. They were actually laying a bit of the track and when the train came, the Italian navvies dropped the bit of line and it fell on his leg, which is correct, I don't know. Both have been told to me by people who knew him extremely well.
1: There was another story, whether or not it is apocryphal that he went away because he had had an affair or wanted to marry a Protestant girl in Ballymoney and he was Catholic.
2: Yes, uh, that certainly has been told to me by members of the family of that Protestant girl and uh, I think that's uh, fairly accurate. Uh, His mother was a very devout and very strict Catholic and uh, he was very much under the influence of his mother and I think that she would have made it very plain to him that this just was not possible for him to do that and of course he never married
1: George Shields came back to Ballymoney to live out the rest of his life in a wheelchair. The Canadian Pacific Railroad helped him to set up a travel agency in the main street in Ballymoney, although some people say it was his brother Eddie who eventually ran this business. And in those days, travel was really emigration to America, booking them through, as it was called. George Shields could not have guessed then that more than 70 years later, the local town hall would bear a plaque to his name and Ireland's National Theatre, the Abbey, would unveil a portrait in its foyer to mark the centenary of his birth. Mr
3: Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it gives me very great pleasure to come here today to present this portrait of the late George Shields to the Abbey Theatre.
1: Elizabeth Leslie, president of Ballymoney's drama festival, unveiling a portrait of George Shields at the Abbey earlier this year. The portrait was presented by the committee of the Ballymoney Drama Festival and was painted by a local artist, Jack Wilkinson. But all this is to come in our story. What had turned the tearaway young emigrant into a writer? His accident to begin with, perhaps also his first reading of Jane Austen. And then the encouragement and advice given to him by older people in his hometown. Shields began his writing career with short stories.
2: Yes, these were stories based on his experiences in Canada and in America. Uh, they were published in various journals and I don't think they ever made a, a very great impact uh, most of them are forgotten today I've read one or two of them and they're really about what life was like in lumber camps and this kind of thing and the dealings that you had and the kind of people that you had to try to get on with there the, the, the mixed bag of people who came together in some kind of place like that and what you did when you got to when your contract was up and how you went and spent your money and drink and woman and so on.
1: And why do you think you turn from these stories to plays?
2: I don't know, I think he felt that he wasn't really making any impact with these stories. There are quite a number of rejection slips, I think, from various newspapers and journals. And uh, the uh, I'm told that uh, Louis Welsh, of Mahara, the, the man who wrote uh, The Auction in Killibuck, uh, was a, a friend, and uh, he suggested to him that he should try to write some plays. The local Uh, schoolmaster in the technical school, James Petticrew, was also interested in him. He didn't know him before he had gone off to America but when he came back he was interested in him because he was sort of pioneering the idea of adult education in the town and he offered him some plays by Shakespeare to read and uh, he was very impressed with Shakespeare. He found them difficult to understand at the beginning, but he was very impressed with the way in which Shakespeare could manage to tie up his plot so successfully. And if you notice, a Shields plot is maybe even more successfully tied up than a Shakespeare plot, in that Shakespeare sometimes resorts to magic if it doesn't work out very well, (coughs) and Shields couldn't do that. But Shields ties up his plot always beautifully at the end. Everything's uh, very much cut and dried, and we all go home feeling quite Happy.
1: The first plays he wrote were farces. These were staged by the Ulster Literary Theatre at the Grand Opera House, Belfast, in 1918. Three years later, the Abbey Theatre in Dublin staged two of his one act farces Bedmates in January 1921 and Insurance Money in December of the same year. These farces weren't of any great dramatic value, but in the following year, 1922, George Shields, to quote the Abbey's historian Hugh Hunt, suddenly reveals himself as the master of the well-made comedy. And that comedy was Paul Twining.
3: Uh, do, do you know what I'm going for to tell you, Paul Twining? I don't, then. So you haven't told me yet? Tell me way there. You, mind your brogues. But oh you've got her right dandy way with a shovel. The way you're mixing that mortar is pure magic. All part of the trade. And tell us, uh, is the plastering a hard class of trade? Neither hard nor soft. That's the way I like me yake too. Well there now. That bit of stuff is ready to go on the walls. Oh, you've made a massive job of this entire house. Nobody would know this kitchen now from what it used to be. A lovely pair of hands is what you've got. Do you know, I often thought to myself that I should have taken on a trade instead of sticking myself here in the farm. Why didn't you then? Ah, of course. That would have meant striking free of your father. Uh, And so you think, Paul Twining, that Dan Deegan is the kind of class of man that's the least little bit afraid of his own father, or of any man? Uh, uh, Oh, God, me uh, father. uh, God, I'm uh, done for if he finds me here. And me supposed to be moving the, the
1: far field... Brendan Caldwell and Seamus Ford in an RTE production of Paul Twining in 1979, produced by Sean Walsh. With that play in 1922, George Shields had arrived... And Paul Twining is still popular today with amateur companies. One man who knew him at this time was John Diamond. As a boy, he ran messages between Shields and a local schoolteacher, Patrick McQuillan. McQuillan was also an aspiring writer, but whereas he thought he was helping Shields to become a writer, John Diamond recalls that, in fact, it was Shields who was helping McQuillan. And he even remembers George Shields' mother. She ran the sweet
4: shop and always wore a man's cap. That was fairly common with women in North
1: Antrim. And was the sweet shop beha- beside, w- beside the house or part of the house where they that lived? It was part of the house,
4: yes. Oh, yes, they weren't so rich as that. They lived above. George was in the room at the back of the shop.
1: And was it from that room that he ran the travel business that he had?
4: Oh, it was Eddie who ran the, tra- the travel business. Eddie ran
1: the travel business. And what did, what did George... Shields just do his writing in those days? Did he help with the travel business?
4: No, well he may have helped but I didn't ever see him do anything about the travel work perhaps Eddie tried to pass them over to him to give him another interest Eddie was a very tall man and another very lonely man lived in a little cottage uh, down from the Ballymoney-Ballinmore Road, crossing the railway track, and once you cross the railway track, you're absolutely alone.
1: During the 1920s, George Shields wrote play after play for the Abbey. Professor Tim, The Retrievers, Cartney and McKevney, Mountain Dew, and then in 1930 he wrote The New Gassoon. It went on at the Abbey in April of that year, and it was to become one of the best and most popular of the theatre's traditional comedies. The Abbey's chairman, Mihalo Hay, has this story to tell about the play.
5: Among the comedies, I would pick out the new Gassoon, as in the best tradition of Abbey comedy, like the White-headed boy, plays like that. And uh, it was a very lively play, and it came at a time when there was great social change, the beginning of the 30s, and um, although everybody says that... The permissive age began Then, uh, nowadays. Uh, uh, it it's, uh, certainly began in the 30s when people became a, a little more mobile than they had been. The horse and trap was uh, cast aside. And as you know, the plot of the New Gossum is uh, amazingly funny. It's about a fellow named Luke Carey, a, son, a farmer's son who gets a motorbike. And it's also the beginning of the cinema in rural Ireland. And uh, Luke Carey is careering... Around the country, in search of young ones whose heads have been turned by Hollywood, as he thinks. And uh, I remember it was treated um, uh, very seriously by sociologists, as you call them nowadays. And I remember one treatise was written by uh, a very erudite um, German professor uh, who was. I took great pains to set off. This was the generation gap, the revolt of the young against the old. And I read it with great interest until I came along to a footnote where he said, for non-Irish speakers, I would like to explain
1: that the word gossoon is the Gaelic for motorcycle. Shields was never able to see the rehearsal of any of his comedies. So as he wrote them, he used to read the parts aloud to himself, working in what he called... The small wee room at the back of the family shop on Main Street.
2: Well, this wee back room was just a room at the back of the shop. There, there was a travel agency. They, they he set up a travel agency. Uh, I think with the the money that he got uh, in compensation for his accident, and uh, his brother Eddie. Who lived with him together with th- their sister, Mary? Uh, Eddie had a kind of seed uh, uh, shop selling sort of things for farmers, you know, this kind of thing, and uh, a small grocery business, I think, also. And then, of course, he had his travel agency. Well, to say it was a travel agency, I think, is really to put it a bit high. Uh, there was very little travel from Ballymoney in those days, uh, except emigration to America, so that he talked about booking them through they used to say in Ballymoney that shales would book you through that was how they put it
1: so he did his writing in this small room?
2: he did his writing in this small room and he sat upstairs and looked out a little window and looked at the main street and all the characters and many of his plays are just based on the characters he uh, saw they always said that his brother and sister were his eyes and ears in that they brought into him all the gossip and all the news and many who went to see him and uh, the image of him in Ballymoney was of uh, a kind of recluse you see who because he, he was handicapped he didn't go out and uh, uh, people who came to see him were usually quite surprised that he knew so much about what was going on and could converse so well. He had of course a number of very close friends in the town as well as his family. There were quite a, a number of people. The Hannah family for example visited him very very regularly and uh, Mr Hanna was a, a very close friend.
1: The man who was later to paint the portrait that now hangs in the Abbey Theatre, Jack Wilkinson, worked for Shields when he was a teenager in Ballymoney. I worked for him,
6: because in those days I was apprentice painter and decorator. And the thing that I remember about him most was that uh, he felt that he wasn't getting enough exercise, so the uh, journeyman and myself we put him up chest expanders. And he used them. So uh, 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 I think this was a help to him, really. How old would he have been at that stage? Oh, no, well, uh, I just couldn't tell you. uh, Well, he must have been probably late 40s, around 50, I would think. But that was the time, about 31, 32, I would be 15, 16, around that time. (laughs) And, uh, of course, I... uh, i seen him for years going up and down by uh, sitting on the window he, he always something looked out you know seen him in the shop but had no contact with him until that time you see and I found him a very cheerful man I always thought he was a very cheerful man but when I was a boy and seen him I thought he was a very cross man <laughs> what's your opinion changed yeah once we, once we got to know him then we found that, uh, that he was a, a humorous
1: man at least to us Today nobody remembers seeing George Shields at his writing, even in the wee room where all those comedies were written. So when did he write?
2: In the evenings and at night, yes. And I'm told that even he he, he would write the thing, you know, in the sitting in the in the shop. Sometimes sitting at his desk, he, he would jot down various things and he had a little black book I think in which he jotted down all sorts of good stories and uh, nice phrases, that lovely turn of phrase which he has, he, he, he uh, jotted down many of the things that he heard people saying and used them in his plays. I think he was constantly, as most writers are, constantly jotting down things when they came into his head, and I'm sure it had to be in the quiet of the evening that he put this all together, but uh, I think the work went on continuously, and uh, the number of people who would be coming to make bookings with him, of course, would be very limited. I remember a lady telling me about giving her brother 30 pounds when he was going to America, and he went into Shields, and he had the money for the ticket to America, plus the 30 pounds, and he gave Shields the whole thing, People, I suppose, he never thought of counting it. And uh, when he went back home, he realised that he'd given him the, the the money for the ticket plus the £30, and he went back in. And Shield said, that was the only business I did today. So if you gave me £30 too much, it's there. And uh, he lifted it out of the drawer and gave him back his £30. So that was about the, the sort of amount that he would have had in a day, maybe one person coming in to see him. So he had plenty of time. In
1: 1936... George Shields wrote The Passing Day. By now, he was accepted as probably the Abbey's leading comic writer, but The Passing Day showed a darker side to his nature, and one doubts whether the critics or the audiences of the time noticed this. When the Abbey revived the play this year, the director, Thomas McConaugh, had this to say.
7: Most of George Shields' work has comic scenes and comic characters, but he was basically a very serious playwright one looks at other plays, McCook's Corner for instance uh, even one of his later ones like Border Wine uh, The Caretakers and although the audiences did treat them as comedies there was a dark strain of realism behind everything he wrote and The Passing Day is no exception The Passing Day is a serious play in the sense that he has examined the last day alive of an old merchant in a small town, probably his own hometown, Valley Money, in County Antrim. And he co- it was commissioned originally for the radio around right about 1935. And one is aware in producing it that it has this quality of a radio play. Uh, but it does transfer very easily to the stage. I've done it twice before, once in Irish and once in English. And on every occasion, I find that the characterization it, always a hallmark of Shields, is very true to life, very dour in many ways, and although there is comic effect in it, and one laughs at old fibs and the arrangements he's making with the solicitor and with his um, family, uh, one is aware that there is a, a wonder, almost a Dickensian sense of character and plot behind the play.
8: I want some money. Uh, oh, certainly, dear. Uh, 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 about how much? And uh, Just be as easy as you can. Well, a fortnight at the hotel costs 12 guineas. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, that's, that's very stiff. What hotel costs that price? The Grand Royal. But, my goodness, that's the dearest hotel in the whole place. Yeah, the best, that's why I'm going there. But only high up people go there. Doctors and lawyers and their wives. but anybody who can afford it goes there. It's the cheapest in the end. Now, give me a cheque. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you a cheque on the last day of the holiday. Now, why not give it to me now? Well, uh, well I, I haven't a blank cheque in the house. I used the last one yesterday. I'll, I'll send you a cheque in, in eight or nine days. Oh, God, i got I, Do you know, I've a terrible pain in my side here all around my heart. Well, you always have a pain somewhere when I'm going away for a holiday. Well, many a time I have it and I never name it. You'll know day when it's too late whether I had a real pain or not. <sighs> I want some ready cash. How much? Now, now be as easy as you can. Times are very hard. Look look at that bunch of letters there, an account in every one of them. Everybody wanting a cheque. Mm. Give me ten pounds. Oh my God. Oh that's terrible. You surely don't want. £10 in your pocket? Sure, that's more than I pay the yard man for six weeks' work. Now, well, I've got to pay the maid a month's board wages. She won't stay here in my absence. Well, why would she not stay here? Well, that's no question. Well, I mean, if that girl goes away now, she'll not come back well, here. You leave that to me. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I don't think I've got £10 here. There's... There's seven. I'll send you another pound note next week. Give me a pound in silver now, then. What's the silver for? Tips. Tips? Oh, my God. I haven't got a pound of silver. There's 17 and 6. Oh, thanks. I'm going out now to pay the maid. Tell Peter to stop a car going down to the station. Have it ready for me at the hall door.
1: Ray McAnally as the skinflint, shopkeeper John Fibbs and Pat Levy as his wife, in the recent Abbey production of The Passing Day. By the late 1930s, Shields was at his peak, vying with Lennox Robinson as the theatre's most popular writer of comedy. The Abbey itself had changed. No longer was it the exclusive preserve of a small coterie of intellectuals. It was now, as its historian Hugh Hunt has observed, a theatre for the people, offering entertainment at which the average citizen could feel at home. The audiences were enjoying plays by Sean O'Casey, Lennox Robinson, Brinsley McNamara and George Shields. The Abbey's Mihalo Hay recalls just how popular those Shields comedies were. More
5: so than O'Casey if you look at it in the wider sense. Like he he had been written for the Abbey before O'Casey started and he remained writing for the Abbey until uh, his death. So, the, naturally, uh, the number of plays contributed is tw- over 20, uh, uh, and they all did reasonably well. I, I, I don't think that any of them were, were ever dismissed as flops, And uh, but there was one play that he wrote, a historical play. And mind you, when he went back in history, he, he, he didn't always uh, succeed. There was a play called Tenants at Will, something like a play uh, that he had... Um, He had studied the reports of the Devon Commission, which was a report on agricultural conditions in Ireland before the Great Famine, and he wrote this play Tenants at Will. It was interesting, but would, uh, I wouldn't call it a success.
1: That was 1945, and I think Cyril Cusack made mm-hmm. right. a leading role. Yes, who do you think were the best performers in, uh, o, in, that, o, in yes.
5: Shields at the Abbey? That's a, a, a very interesting question, because whatever they say against Shields, ask any actor or any good actress and say, no matter what the, the critics of the intelligentsia who always more or less frowned on him and uh, put him in a secondary place, you ask any good actor. Uh, where Did You Get Your Best Parts, he'll trump up with uh, um, uh, either um, O'Casey or Shields. Shields wrote a whole gallery of character parts that gave wonderful parts to uh, F.J. McCormick, Eileen Crow, Rhea Mooney, Mick Dolan, indeed the whole cast of The Rugged Path in 1940, you know the. Um, it's a cliche in a no, but you it, often come out after the first reading of a Nabby play by Shields and say there are no bad parts in it. Now that was the actor's verdict, which must be of some value against the rather lib uh, academic uh, comment that you get.
1: Certainly, the academics at the time could find no place for George Shields, perhaps Shields himself didn't want to be thought of as a literary man, and he was probably conscious of his early background. And as he was still living in Ballymoney, he didn't want to be known as one of Ireland's leading playwrights.
2: Well, I think, you see, he was, he was very much the, the working-class boy uh, who had very little education. He felt that he would be looked down on by the inn people of the town and district and uh, they would be saying, even his own neighbours would be saying, look at George Shields, you know, look at him, what does he think he is? How could he write a play? Uh, And that remained with him all his days, in that he was most anxious uh, to uh, prevent anybody who wanted to be a friend, for their own selfish reasons, from being a friend and there were many people in Northern Ireland particularly who sort of latched onto him once he became famous or tried to but he gave them the cold shoulder in no uncertain terms and it was impossible to get, uh, it was a stone wall, there was nobody got through he, he didn't wish to talk to them.
1: Did he in effect play down his fame?
2: Very much so and uh, for example Queen's University offered him an honorary degree And he wrote back and said, no, thank you.
1: Why do you think he did that? Well,
2: I I don't know. It was just the the person, the type of person he was. Uh, Ballymoney Council wanted to put a plaque on the house where he lived and in which he wrote so many of his plays. And he was furious at the very idea of it uh, and told them that under no circumstances would this be done. In fact, this is why I say that these centenary celebrations of this year uh, would embarrass him in the extreme. Uh, And it was really many years after his death when his sister Mary was making her will that she decided that he, despite all that he had said, that he really should be remembered in some way. And she left some money to the Ballymoney Drama Festival committee to do this in the way that they thought best, for she felt they would know when she was too old to do anything about it.
1: Later, George Shields moved from the wee room in Ballymoney to a large study in a fine house overlooking the bay at Carnlock on the Antrim coast.
2: Oh, well, it was quite a large house he lived in. A large um, house? Yes, New Lodge. A beautiful house, I believe.
1: Do you think he should have made this move earlier? I mean, why did he keep on his business if he was so successful as a playwright?
2: Well, I think it kept him in contact with people. Uh, although it might have been very few people that he was in contact with at least it did keep him in contact with people because I think in Carnlough he became even more of a recluse Uh, and uh, he uh, loved his visitors but they nearly all came from Ballymoney there were a few from the Carnlough area who came to see him Uh, but uh, you know he I think he, he liked Ballymoney particularly, it was the place he was born and the place he felt happy and secure and and he knew where he was and knew the situation.
1: But obviously Cardalloc then was a very different setting from his hometown. Very
2: different setting and of course by that time he was recognised uh, in Britain and Uh, all over the world indeed as a playwright and there are letters coming to him from all sorts of people and all sorts of places and uh, he is really taken up most of his time in writing his plays and dealing with his correspondence and being really a full-time writer at that stage.
1: One gets the impression looking at a play like The Passing Day in which the leading character is uh, a rather mean businessman that Shields himself may have had something of this streak
2: I think so if you look at his account books uh, in which he kept the royalty money uh, all the accounts of the various companies sending him royalty money you can see that he did this scrupulously uh, he also invested in stocks and shares and worked the market uh, very successfully uh, and uh, he certainly had an eye to business i remember a man telling me about a, a a rather uh, remote company from a a distant part of the North who didn't even know that they were supposed to pay royalties when they presented one of his plays and uh, the announcement of the performance was put in the local paper and Shields saw it and he wrote the most scathing letter to them and demanded that the representatives of the company would appear before him otherwise he would have them in the High Court and take what they got when they appeared. He told them in no uncertain terms what he thought of them, and he decided that, I think, he would allow them to perform the play, but uh, it was very begrudged, as they say, in North antrim In
1: 1941, Harold Goldblatt was among the actors who came together to form a professional theatre in Belfast, calling themselves the Ulster Group Theatre, and he went to Shields to ask for advice.
9: I met him in the early 40s in New Lodge, Car- Carn Loch, in uh, County Antrim. And uh, well, he was very nice. He received me very well. He had a beautiful home. And I found him one of the cheeriest and, stim- and most stimulating personalities I've ever known. Despite his disability? Despite his disability. I thought I was frightened. I thought I'd meet a sour man. Because you see, as a result of the accident, he couldn't do anything for himself. He had to be lifted and laid. He was paralysed from the waist down. But the advice he gave me was quite simple and friendly. He said, what sort of a theatre have you in mind? Do you want to be follow the example of the English theatre presenting the West End success Or do you want to have a theatre like the Abbey, which has its roots firmly planted in the soil, to present the characteristics of the Ulster people and their way of life? And as a result of that conversation and his advice, that was the policy that we had in the group theatre. We took it on a three-month trial and we lasted for over 21 years. Shields wrote his plays
1: without ever experiencing the capabilities of his actors or the reactions of his audiences. He never visited the Abbey Theatre, and only once did he see a production of one of his plays, and that was in
9: Belfast. He was unable, except on one occasion he was taken to see, in the Grand Opera House Belfast, Professor Tim... And he sat in his wheelchair in the wings for a short while, and he left. But he never saw, and this is absolute fact, he never saw, apart from that, seeing a short uh, version, short uh, bit of uh, uh, the Professor Tim, he never saw any play that he ever wrote.
1: On one occasion, the Abbey players made an effort to bring one of their productions to Shields, all the way from Dublin to Antrim.
0: The play was Quinn's Secret, in which Cyril Cusack played the leading part. I remember it for two things. I think it was round about that time that Frederick May, the composer, uh, made a suggestion to the players that we should give a special performance for Shields Uh, up in his home, which I think was in Loch, And, of course, we were all very agreeable. It was uh, the least we could do for uh, an author who had supplied us with so many plays and who himself was disabled, thought it was a great idea. And uh, down came the directors on Freddie May and the rest of us, like a ton of bricks. They were absolutely enraged. I think Frank O'Connor was managing director at the time, whom... uh, Freddie may really were hero worship to the point of idolatry and uh, poor Freddie, at any rate, was uh, suspended for some few months as a result of his initiative and uh, altogether it was a rather sorry affair.
1: And what possibly could the objection have been to you taking Oh, well, it the play was simply
0: a matter of uh, hierarchy, I suppose, that uh, the... Uh, the protocol would have it that the director should be consulted first. During the 40s, Shields
1: wrote play after play for the Abbey. The Rugged Pass, the Summit, the Fort Field, Tenants at Will, the New Regime, the Old Broom. After the first night of the Rugged Pass, the Irish independent critic David Sears wrote, George Shields showed us at the Abbey last night that he is a great dramatist. His last play was The Caretakers, performed at the Abbey early in 1948. Less than two years later, on September 19, 1949, George Shields died. Cyril Cusack, who acted in so many Shields plays from the 30s onwards at the Abbey, makes this assessment of The Man in the Wee Room.
0: The Abbey Theatre, for its survival, owed uh, more to George Shields and Lennox Robinson than to O'Casey, because you can't go on repeating the three plays, O'Casey's three plays forever and ever. Amen. Uh, whereas uh, Shields uh, produced uh, uh, a prodigious uh, repertoire of plays which were uh, more than acceptable. They were entertaining, they were instructive, and uh, they had uh, a reflection of Irish society in the rural areas uh, which was uh, certainly wanting to be seen. For the
1: centenary year, the passing day has been revived at the Abbey, and yet so many of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s plays have been forgotten. mihalo Hay gives his reasons.
5: My idea is that so many of them were situation comedies. I mean that in the best sense of the word. That to some extent, not completely, because I think they're much better, that the market for them has been... Um, Oh, it's it's not as good as it used to be. First, they were done to death, as I said, by amateurs. And secondly, they were succeeded by situation plays, say, like uh, The Reardons and Bracken on television. It did harm, but uh, in due course, everything changes. as a cyclic thing. The situation comedies may disappear in television, and you might find George Shields back on the stage once more.
1: Had he lived on, would he have written perhaps a different style of play for the changing audiences of the 1950s? Thomas McConaughey doesn't think so.
7: No, I think he, he, the mould he set himself to write in was set from the 30s on. And I think his last play in the Abbey was The Caretakers. That was in 1948. And it still had all the qualities that one discerns in the earlier plays. Good characterization inevitably a will, inevitably property that people were fighting over, inevitably antagonisms between neighbours, and um, again, the black humour. And one remembers, looking back, magnificent performance by the late Breed Lynch in that particular part of uh, Rio Mooney's first productions when she came to the Abbey in 48. And um, we have revived it once or twice since, and I think it's still worthy of revival, but I think it's in the mould he set himself a grim, northern, realistic type play. And he very rarely experimented,
1: if indeed he experimented at all. The shy playwright was buried in the churchyard of Our Lady in St. Patrick in Ballymoney, the town where he had spent most of his life. Does Ballymoney remember him today as their most famous son?
2: Yes, um, this is the unusual thing. <laughs> that despite all that he did to try to prevent himself from getting any publicity, uh, Bally Money, everybody in Ballymoney Money knows that George Shields was the great play- playwright from their town and uh, he really has gained a great deal of fame despite himself and people, uh, when, uh, for example, a George Shields play is staged in they Money, full houses, uh, at the drama festival we had a, a George Shields play this last time and the house was booked out for a fortnight beforehand, not a seat to be had. Uh, and they applauded it virtually line by line the whole way through, uh, which is quite amazing. Uh, Of course, I suppose the irony of it all is that it took him all these years to gain the recognition of his fellow townsfolk, and when he was living amongst them, he was just George Shields down Main Street.